Good morning. It's already been mentioned of what a great time we had this week at our vacation Bible school. And uh, a lot of the folks who took part in that and worked in that are not here. Uh, I don't think it's because they're unable. It's just that they, they deliberately planned that at the end of that week, they're getting out of town. Uh, they enjoyed it so much, they just can't handle it anymore. Uh, we had a great vacation Bible school. I so much appreciate Chris and Susie and, and all of the people who worked in it. We had almost one-for-one one ratio of workers to, uh, to children, as we always do. Uh, and it's always a wonderful thing, and the kids enjoyed it, and uh, it, was a, it was a great experience, and we so much appreciate that. It is sowing seed in the hearts of young children that uh, will bear fruit for years to come, and we're so grateful to those who worked in, uh, in order to make that possible, and we're glad that you are here this morning uh, to be a part of our worship and a part of this continued study of Isaiah chapter 53. The first chapter of the book of Job tells us that when Job's three friends heard about his suffering and what had happened to him, how he had lost everything, had lost all of his children, had lost his health, had lost his esteem in the community of which he'd been a part for so long, they came together to go and comfort him. What they saw when they got there shocked them. It shocked them so badly that they didn't say anything for a week. They found their friends sitting on an ash heap, covered in sores, using a piece of broken pottery to scrape those sores as they were oozing, and in utter agony, disfigured almost beyond recognition. He was suffering so horribly. But because of their belief that suffering was always the result of what you had done, was always the result of having sinned against God, they concluded that Job must have done something terrible. And so they spend most of the rest of the book trying to persuade him to confess what he has done that was really so awful because they were certain that God was punishing him for something. Little did they know that what was really happening was a cosmic test. That God and Satan had had a conversation. And Satan had said he had been walking to and fro upon the earth. And God said, have you considered my servant Job, a blameless and upright man who fears me and turns away from evil? And Satan said, if you take away all the goodies that you've given him, he will curse you to your face. You are not worth worshiping for yourself alone. Take away all the blessings that you have given him, and you'll see what happens. And God allowed him to do that. Job's three friends didn't know about that, and so all they saw was a man suffering. All they saw, they thought, was a man being punished. When in reality, what was taking place was a man who was honoring God by his suffering, a man who was honoring God and his reputation by being willing to undergo what he was undergoing without understanding what was happening himself. 
and they just read the situation completely wrong. When Isaiah predicted the sufferings of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, he said that the same thing was going to happen. Remember, he's speaking in past tense, but it's a prophetic perfect. It's a prophetic past. He's speaking of it as though it's already happened, and yet it's 800 years in the future. As he talks about the death of Jesus on the cross, in verse 4, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's what we thought, he said was that he was being punished by God. He's talking about Jesus and what he endured on the cross. And to the, to the human eye, to those who were present that day, it simply looked like someone being punished for some crime and being punished by God. After all, only the worst, the lowest of criminals were put to death by crucifixion. And after all, the law of Moses said in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23, a hanged man is cursed by God. And so the people who were standing there that day and the people who passed by that day thought that what they were seeing was the just punishment of a man who was under the curse of God. And Isaiah says that we, people in general, saw a man who was obviously being smitten by God and afflicted and nothing more. That's why those who, who witnessed what Jesus was undergoing thought that he was fair game to be mocked and to be spat upon. After all, even God didn't want anything to do with him. Even God has turned his back on him. So why shouldn't we enjoy a little sport at his expense? Even the religious leaders of the people got in on it. They said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. But Isaiah says that they, we, got it all wrong. That what they thought was happening wasn't what was happening at all. You see, what was really happening was that Jesus was dying, carrying an enormous burden. He was carrying an enormous burden. What burden was he carrying? Why was he suffering so? What was happening that people didn't understand then and that so many people still don't understand? Well, Isaiah 4 through 6 makes it clear. Listen to the words again. We're concentrating just on these three verses this morning. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you'll notice carefully, ten times in those three verses, ten times the prophet says, we, our, us. It was all about us. Jesus was dying on the cross. 
for us. He was dying on the cross because of our sins. He was dying on the cross because of our sorrows, our griefs, our transgressions, our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 12 says, he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. transgressors. So what was really happening there on that cross that day was that he was taking a punishment that we deserve so that we don't have to suffer separation from God forever. That's what was really going on. And nobody saw it. Nobody understood it. This is how the suffering servant would bring people back to God. Remember, that's what the suffering servant's songs in Isaiah are about, all four of them. How to bring God's people back to him. How to have people be reconciled to God after being estranged from him because of their sinfulness. And this is how he would do it. He would suffer for those very sins. He would suffer for the sins that had caused the alienation, the sins that had caused the separation, the sins that, the sins that created the distance between them and God. The servant would suffer for those sins. The words pierced and crushed suggest the violence of his death. Back in 2004, when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, so many people went to see it. And I don't know how many people I heard say after they had seen it. It was so violent. It was so bloody. And my reaction to that was, what did you expect? What do you think a crucifixion was like? What do you think it was like to beat a man with a whip that had bone and glass and metal woven into the thongs and beat him almost to death and then nail him up on a cross and then stick a spear in his side? What do you think that was going to be like? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, Isaiah said. He took our punishment for us so that we could be right with God, and with his wounds we are healed. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Edward J. Young, who was an Old Testament scholar of a previous generation, said that that, that word carried has the idea of lifted up and carried away. That's what he's done. He's made possible the lifting up and carrying away of our sins. In the same way that as Jesus was on the way to the cross, he stumbled and couldn't carry the weight of it, and Simon of Cyrene picked it up and carried it for him. Jesus carried our cross for us. We were all like straying sheep, Isaiah says, lost and unable to find our way back. Why? Because we've turned, he says, everyone to his own way. We were that sinful, that rebellious. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But here we come to the crux of the issue. If we're ever going to understand the cross, if we're ever going to understand it any better than those people did who were standing around that day mocking him and spitting at him, we have to grasp the depth and reality of human sin. And we just don't most of the time. I'll never forget sitting in a faculty meeting at VCU back in 2004. 
And one of the professors with kind of a smirky grin on his face, commenting about the movie The Passion of the Christ and saying, I've never done anything so bad that someone would have to suffer like that for me. And what that man verbalized, many actually believe. And that's why they don't turn to Christ. They think they don't need him. You know what most people think about their lives? You know, even people who will say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I mess up. It's, you know, I need a tune-up. I need a little tweaking. I, 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 need a, I, need a, I need a little paint, a coat, coat of paint. I need, a, I need a little cleaning up. What does the Bible say? The Bible says we need rebirth. It says we need to start all over again. It says what J.B. Phillips was paraphrasing when he said that when Christ comes into a person's life, he doesn't just rearrange the furniture. He knocks down all the walls and remodels the house. Because that's what we need. That's what we have to have because we are so sinful. The only way to begin to get at the reality of the cross is to recognize the absolute holiness of God. That's when we begin to realize our sinfulness. You see, Isaiah has already talked about a vision he had back in Isaiah chapter 6 when he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and he saw the, the angelic beings flying back and forth and calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you know what that caused him to do? It didn't cause him to think, you know, I need to, I need to do a little better. I need to clean up my act a little. What it caused him to do was to say, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It was seeing the holiness of God, the absolute holiness and perfection of God that made him realize the depth of his own sin. You see, God is so pure and so holy that sin brings forth his wrath. It is his natural reaction to sin. When we lived in Texas years ago, occasionally in our house we'd find a scorpion. That's not something you want to find in your house. Those things scared me to death. For one thing, they're just as ugly as they can be. And I'd heard so many people talk about, about how painful the stings were and how you had to be careful, you know, before you put on your shoes because they might be in there. They might be anywhere. And I got in the habit when I would see one of those things, the revulsion was just overwhelming. And I would just, I, I think I pounded them until there was no pieces left. I just, just wanted to destroy them, just, just kill them, just wipe them out. And that probably doesn't begin to compare to how God reacts to sin. And yet he loves sinners. We sang that song a few minutes ago. Amazing love. How can it be. That you my God would die for me. Such holiness and such a revulsion to sin. And yet such a great love 
for sinners, that he sent his son to suffer and die for us. And we have all sin and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23. And as I think about that verse, I think, I think that what an enormous understatement that we fall short of the glory of God. It's not like we almost made it. It's not like any of us almost reached the glory of God by the lives that we live. It's, it's as if we were looking at the Grand Canyon where it's a mile wide and we decided if I just run fast enough, surely I can. And you know what's going to happen. That, that's it. That's what Paul's talking about. We fall short of the glory of God. We don't even get close to the glory of God. And so this is how the New Testament describes the death of Jesus for us. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist was standing with some of his followers one day, and he saw Jesus coming, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. It's the only time Jesus was ever called that. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And our minds go back to all those sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament. whose blood was spilled to try to make atonement for sin. And we read the book of Revelation where 29 times Jesus is called the Lamb. The Lamb who conquers by being slain. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, a ransom for many, to give his life to buy us out of the bondage of our own sinfulness, a mess we got ourselves into, and he buys us out of it at the cost of his own suffering and death. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And I have to think he had Isaiah 53 in mind, don't you? He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then there's 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, and you know sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Don't misunderstand that. That does not mean Jesus became sinful for us. When it says he became sin, it means that he took on the burden of sins, of everybody's sins, the sins of the whole world. If we could imagine some way that we could picture or quantify in some way all the sins of the world, of everybody in it for all time. That's what Jesus was bearing on the cross. That's what he was bearing on the cross. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 says, My little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the offering the sacrificial offering for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we hear Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have gone, turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us.
atonement of Jesus, of the vicarious atonement. That means that he died in our place. That simply means he took the suffering, the punishment that we deserve and suffered for us. He loved us that much. He suffered in order to give us something we can never get for ourselves, reconciliation with God. Because without him, we would all be doomed to an eternity without God, period. No exceptions, no, no other possibilities. And yet there are people who object to the idea of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. They reject the idea that God's wrath had to be satisfied at the cost of his son. Some people say, how, how awful, what a terrible picture of God, what a terrible way to think of God as demanding that kind of sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. But you see, once again, we don't understand those two things, his holiness, our sinfulness. There wasn't any other way to do it. There wasn't any other way to do it. And I just cringe when I hear somebody say, God could have chosen any way he wanted to to save the world. He just chose that. What a horrible thing to say. What a false thing to say. Understand this well. Sometimes we do not understand what was going on at the cross any more than the people who were standing around it did. We think it was about things that it wasn't about. Jesus did not die to set you an example of self-sacrifice. His dying on the cross did that, but he didn't die to do that. He didn't die to set you an example to follow because you, you can't follow his example to that extent. He didn't die just to set you an example. He didn't die to give you a happier life. That's what a lot of folks tell us. Just follow Jesus and you'll be happier. Everything will go fine with you. He didn't die to give you a happier life, although there is no greater joy than living for him. But he didn't die to make you happy. He didn't die so you could reach your full potential as a human being. He didn't die for that. He didn't die to make you a better person, although following him is the only way to reach your full potential as a human being because that's God's will for you. But he didn't die to help you fulfill your potential. He didn't die to give you better mental health. Although you will be healthier if you follow him. He didn't die so you could be more righteous than other people. Followers of Jesus ought to be more righteous than the average person, certainly. But he didn't die to make you better than other folks. He didn't die to enhance your self-esteem so that you would feel better about yourself. He didn't die so that you could get your head on straight and see how wonderful you really are. He didn't die to make you think better of yourself so that you could start making better choices. He died because without him and without his death on the cross, you would have no hope. You would have no hope. You would be lost for all eternity, forever cut off from God. That's why he died. That's what Isaiah says. That's what John said. That's what Paul said. That's what Jesus himself said. That's what was happening that day at the cross. It wasn't a man being punished by God for his own sins. It was a man bearing the burden of my sins 
and your sins and the sins of everyone in the whole world. And if God laid on him the sins of every one of us, what a shame. What a shame if anyone refuses to be saved by his death. What a shame if you say no to this offer of life. What a shame if you keep telling yourself, I'm not that bad after all. What a shame if you keep thinking that you're going to do better, and by doing better, you'll be okay. What a shame if you choose to take your chances, hoping that there really isn't a judgment, and hoping that there really isn't an eternity apart from God, that maybe that's just all overdone. What a shame if you leave this place today, having heard that Christ died for your sins, but if you leave this place today, not having had your sins taken away because you're too proud or too stubborn or too whatever to simply confess, yes, I need Jesus. I am a lost and helpless sinner without him. <laughs> what a shame if you think that it's asking too much to deny yourself and be identified with Jesus by being baptized into his death and having your sins washed away and live the rest of your life serving him. He's already paid the price for your sins. He's offering you the opportunity to have them taken away and knowing that they are taken away and knowing that you are right with God because you've received the gift that God has to give you. The gift he gave when his son bore that burden for you. There's an old hymn that's not in our books. Jesus bore it all. One verse says, I stood condemned to die, but Jesus freely took my place. He bore it all that I might live. He died to take your place. Are you ready to follow him? If you are, all you need to do, step out and walk up here and tell us. And we'll take it from there. We'll show you how to find that peace and that forgiveness. Come now while we stand together and sing. Every